As we turn our attention to Hebrews chapter 12 today, and again, I'm being a little briefer in the first part because Sister Bev is sharing morning devotions with me, and she gets so excited about Ezekiel. She said, that there's so much in every passage. I said, I know. But I said, it's the same number of pages that we normally read. I said, it's the fullness of the passage. And you know, she loves Ezekiel almost as much as she loves Isaiah. All right, let's get into Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 14. He says, strive for peace. Move this up just a little bit for you and click us in. Strive for peace and for holiness. Now, New Living Translation says work for peace, work for holiness. There's going to be some effort needed. Right? There's effort that is needed here. Strive for peace with everyone. This would be believers and unbelievers. Strive for peace. You, you work hard to have peace with people. Now, I know that there are some people that you can't have peace with, and Paul understood that. And, you know, there's a lot of people that just hated Paul every day of his life because he insisted on doing the right thing. But, you know, as much as possible, you, you work at having peace with everyone. You work at living a holy life. And here's the key, without which no one will see the Lord. I know we live in a world that doesn't even like to use the word holiness anymore. I know that Christianity doesn't like that word. But holiness, you're not going to see God. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. Now, here's some truth that you got to get a hold of. There are people that fail to obtain the grace of God. There are people that just never understand grace. They never reach out and receive grace. You and I really have to work hard at making sure no one fails to obtain grace. And you and I have to work hard. This is something that we are, see to it, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. Anytime people get a root of bitterness in their heart, it always causes trouble and it always causes many to become defiled. Folks, there's a lot of bad things that people do to every one of us every day. And one of the great secrets in a healthy life, a healthy soul, a healthy spiritual life, is that you don't let a root of bitterness get planted in your life and begin to grow. You know, a person would say, Pastor, but you don't know what they did to me. I said, would you like to sit in my chair for a while? Would you like to sit in my chair and listen to all the lies that people tell about me? And then I thought about Brother John. How many horrible things are told about Brother John? Oh, my goodness. Look at Dr. Cho. How many horrible? Listen, I've got it easy. These people that are like my fathers in the faith, they've been through. Ah, Things happen to us, brothers and sisters. Don't let bitterness take root in you. Because it'll always cause trouble every time. You let, you let a root of bitterness grow in you, it will cause trouble. And it's not just going to hurt you. Many will become defiled. People will get, it's going to tear up other Christians' lives. Please, I know bad stuff happens to us. It happens to all of us. Look at Jesus, the perfect man. Look at Paul. Other than Jesus, the greatest apostle that ever lived. Look at them. But somehow they still kept bitterness from growing up within them. 
causes trouble, and many, it's going to hurt a lot of people around you. Whole families lose their salvation. Whole families turn away from God because one root of bitterness grows up in somebody. He said, now see to it. Here's another one of these see to it. So we need to start numbering these see to it. Number one, number two, number three, and see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. All right? Now, look at this for a minute. No one is sexually immoral. You don't want sexual immorality in the church. Now, it's amazing to me how churches tolerate it today. And there are so many preachers. I read of another preacher just the other day that got caught up in it again, just Last month, there was another big-name preacher in the world who got caught up in it again. You can't let sexual immorality stay among us. He said, or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright. So he, he, chose, he chose pesos over destiny. Hmm. So you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You know, there are some decisions that you make that are a one-way street. And we don't like that because God's the God of a second chance. I believe that God's a God of forgiveness. But at the same time, you have to understand, and I don't like to say this, there are no real second chances in the world. Yes, God will forgive you. Yes, God will build a beautiful destiny for you. But the trajectory of your life has changed. You see, when you, you go off and make a decision in a group of directions, and, you know, I'm sorry, there's just stuff there that it's never going to be the same. You're never going to accomplish as much. You've, you've made decisions that affected the trajectory of your life. And that, that's what Esau did. He, he made a decision to put money over destiny. He sold his birthright for a single meal. He, didn't, he did not value what he had. No value of what he had. There was no, he placed no worth on it. He despised it. Literally, he despised it. He thought little of it. And you know what? When he desired, he said, oh, I've changed my mind. There was no opportunity to repent, though he sought it with tears. Beloved, please, God has a plan for your life. Don't trash it. Don't easily discard it because you, you choose a short-term benefit. Short-term benefits are not worth the plan of God for your life. Got to be careful. I got to move in this. There's so much here. For you have not come to what may be touched. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, Darkness, gloom, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg no further messages be spoke to them. For they could not incur endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. <laughs> but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festive gathering, and to an assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks 
a better word than the blood of Abel. Oh, that whole passage is a wow. This is what we have come to. This is the new covenant. <laughs> we have come. When we come to God, we don't come to a place of fear. We come to a place of joy. We come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. We come to God. We come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Folks, we come to Jesus. Ah, We come to the sprinkled blood. Wah! What do you do with all this? It is no wonder that we boldly come before the throne of God. Ah, I, I, yeah, I'm just going to start preaching. I got to move up. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Wow. I'll do all three colors. See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. Now, who's speaking? God. For they, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject the one who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is the purpose of God shaking. Now, there's a whole lot I could teach you on this, but just take one application this morning. When everything in our life gets shaken, you find out what can't be shaken. When God has done this shaking during this COVID-19, have you noticed there are relationships that are no longer with you? Oh, they could be shaken. Have you noticed that there is business that is no longer with you? That could be shaken. You're getting down to the core of business. You're getting down to the core of your relationships, the people that God wants around you. Uh -huh. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, and there's a big therefore, when you see a big therefore, because of everything we've just read, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God is a part of our life, and it cannot be shaken. COVID can't shake it. Financial crisis can't shake it. People can't shake it. Satan can't shake it. We have received a kingdom. We have received authority that cannot be shaken. Let us therefore offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. So worship must flow from respect and it must flow from awe. I like some of the intimacy that some Christian music has in it today. But I think sometimes it takes it too far and we've lost our awe of God. We've lost our respect for God. Paul said, listen, acceptable worship is full of respect. Respectable worship is full of awe. God is God. Our hearts are awed. And if there's one thing I would say that has been lost in the modern church, it's the awe of God. Beloved, 
Every day, have an encounter with God. Every day, open your heart. I was up, <laughs> it was funny. I, I woke up at 1.32 this morning with my brain moving on stuff and I, I was looking at Jesus and I was seeing things in a whole new way about how Jesus, when he despised the cross for the joy set before him, despised the cross, enduring the shame, but despised the cross, thought little of the cross because of the joy set before him. Oh, beloved, stand in awe of God every day of your life. All right, let's open up our hearts for some more worship.
back to Ezekiel. This morning, we have the privilege of starting our Ezekiel reading in chapter 17. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. You see, that's always the nickname that God always called Ezekiel. Propound a riddle and speak a parable. So, so far in the book of Ezekiel, we have seen proverbs and parables and riddles, but a riddle is something that the meaning needs to be explained. There's something, there's a d deeper meaning. And a parable, of course, in this case, it is an allegory. It's a story. And we're going to learn something from it. So when we read it, we realize we're not, it's going to talk about eagles and twigs. And of course, we're not literally talking about literal eagles and twigs because it already clearly says it's a riddle and it's a parable. And the nice thing about this is that in the same chapter, the parable and the riddle, it's clearly laid out. The meaning of it is clearly laid out. So just before we get started on reading it, let me just kind of explain so that when we read it, we can just basically go through it because it will be very clear. The temple of God and the palace, of course, was made, both of them were made with cedars of Lebanon. So when you're going to hear about Lebanon, we're actually talking about the cedars of Lebanon that were used to make the temple and the palace. And there are two eagles in the story. This is a story about Judah, the kingdom of Judah, the audience of Ezekiel, basically. Babylon, where they were taken captive, and of course, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And the third party is Egypt. This is a story of Judah, Babylon, and Egypt. 
And the two eagles, the first eagle is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, because an eagle is like the king of the birds. So when we see eagle, we're going to talk about a king. And the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the first eagle. The twig that is carried off, that's King Jehoiakim. He's not even worthy to be called an eagle. He's just a twig that is carried off. And of course, he was carried off to Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar, however, even though he carried off King Jehoiakim, he placed Zedekiah as king. A puppet king, yeah, he placed a puppet king over the kingdom of Judah once he carried off people to Babylon. Subject to the Babylonians, yes, but a king nonetheless. And conditions were good in the kingdom of Judah as long as they would be subservient and pay all kinds of tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. However, there's a second eagle in the story, so that's a second king, and this is Egypt. So Zedekiah could have maintained this kind of a truce with Babylon, this agreement that, yeah, okay, I'll be the king, but we'll give all this, this uh, bounty to, to Babylon and to King Nebuchadnezzar, but he chose not to. He chose to look to Egypt for help. And Jeremiah, in fact, if you read the book of Jeremiah, one of the things he did, he was trying to stop Zedekiah from this plan because it wasn't God's will. But nevertheless, it, he was not successful. So that is basically the story of the two eagles, the twig, and we'll carry on a little more detail as we read the parable. So, Thus says the Lord, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors. So that means this eagle, who's the first eagle? King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. He had a great reach. Many nations were under him, so he had a great reach. Came to Le Lebanon and took the top off of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs, so that is the young twig, Jehoiakim, and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. All right. So Nebuchadnezzar came and took Jehoiakim and took him to Babylon, the city of trade and merchants. Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He, pla he placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out great boughs. So this is the story of Judah under King Zedekiah that had been placed there, even though Jehoiakim had been taken away. It was good. It was all right. But he had to be subservient to Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the first eagle. Verse 7. And there was another great eagle. Who's the second eagle? Egypt. All right. With great wings and much plumage also. So it's a powerful nation. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. 
It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Thus says the Lord God, Will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong army or many people to pull it from its roots. So God is saying, okay, Zedekiah is going to turn to this second eagle to Egypt. Is it going to work? No, (laughs) it's not going to work. And it's not going to take much of an army before it gets pulled out from these beautiful situations that it had found itself in. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it? Wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house. So now the riddle is going to be explained. When it was explained, whether it was immediate or whether it was sometime later, it doesn't say so because it doesn't say. We don't know exactly when it is. You know, when it comes to Zedekiah looking to Egypt, when we look to the things of this world to help us, sometimes for a time, it may appear that the world is being of help to us, that the things of this world, oh, that was exactly what I needed to be of help to me. I know that's exactly what I needed, but it is so short-lived for only in God can we prevail. And God has his own ways. So don't look to the things of the world. People will say to you, just have a little drink at night. You know, just, it'll it'll help you to unwind. While it may seem to provide temporary relief, it's going to be short-lived because it will bite you in the end. When you look to the things of this world, when you look to the people and the sinful ways of the world for your help, though it may appear to help for a time, it's not, it's not what you need. As I said, only in God can we thrive. Only in God can we prevail. All right, so here he's going to start to explain the riddle. Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him in Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, Who's that? That's Zedekiah. Putting him under oath, the chief men of the land had been taken away. Chief men of the land, such as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep the covenant that it might stand. So, you know, that was the pattern of the kings of old. When they conquered another land, they took all of its leadership away just to avoid any future uprisings, so they thought. But he, Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? You know, when God starts asking you questions, you should stop and take note. (laughs) Because sometimes... In your spirit, God will start asking you questions. Why are you doing this? Is this right? What about this scripture? What about that scripture? Are you going in the right direction? 
And you know, when God starts asking you questions, you need to answer honestly. And we need to mind the promptings of the Holy Spirit in our heart because he is so faithful to remind us of the ways of God and the word of God. And if we keep on hardening and hardening and hardening our hearts, eventually we'll be hardened to his voice. So when he asks questions, you should pay attention. Verse 16, as I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, he despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. Isn't that a theme that we see in the book of Ezekiel? When we do things against God, that is the very thing that comes upon our own head. That's how God judges us. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword. So Egypt, according to Isaiah chapter 30, and according to Isaiah chapter 36, Egypt is always useless to look to Egypt for help. And Egypt is a type of the world or sin. It's just of no use to us. It will not be profitable for us to look to the world for help instead of looking to God. Our eyes need always to look to the heavens where our help comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. And everybody said, amen. So it says, the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one. The tender one, that's the Messiah. So this passage, this paragraph, the last paragraph of chapter 17 it's a branch from David's house. Clearly, this is a messianic prophetic reference talking about the tender one, Messiah, and God will do it. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant it that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches Birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. <laughs> How many times have we seen that passage or that phrase, and then they shall know that I am the Lord? And it's usually people God's talking about. But even the trees of the field will know, all of creation will know that He is the Lord. It says, I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Of course, the humble he exalts. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. 
I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Of course, when all human plans come and go, God makes all things work together for our good. He jumps in there. He directs our paths. He holds the heart of kings. He knows the beginning from the end. He works salvation for us. His hand is mighty. His hand saves. No one can stop him and no one can snatch you from out of his hand. And so that chapter 17 is a parable or a riddle. And now you know the answer to the riddle. And now you know that ultimately, of course, you knew already, God is in charge and God will bring about salvation. Now, chapter 18, in this chapter, chapter 18, we're going to see laid out clear scriptural principles. And the most important principle from this chapter is individual accountability. We are accountable to God. We're accountable to God for our actions. We're accountable to God for who we listen to, what we read, what we put before our eyes, how we treat our fellow human beings. We have individual accountability to God. And when God says, do something, and then you just automatically go and say, oh, yeah, but so-and-so told me to do something different. God's not going to look at so-and-so. He's going to look at you in the sense that you have individual accountability to God. So, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So there's a common saying that was going through the land. And indeed, in this common saying, this proverb, the people were implying that God was not just, that he wasn't being fair. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. I like that. All souls are mine. The soul who sins shall die. Now, in this chapter, chapter 18, we have an example of a godly grandfather and then an ungodly son, and then a godly grandson. And if you think about it, because Ezekiel was talking to the southern kingdom of Judah, this perfectly fits the pattern of King Hezekiah, who was a godly person, and then his son Manasseh, who was totally, he was so evil. He was like one who sacrificed his own children to these heathen gods, burned them in the fire. He was very evil. And then Manasseh, the grandson of Hezekiah, now Josiah, Manasseh's son, Josiah, was a godly man. So a godly grandfather, an ungodly father, and then a godly grandson. And we will see that it clearly applies to that. And of course, it clearly applies to our own lives. And we need to remember that God has no grandchildren. This is part of this principle of individual accountability. God has no grandchildren. You cannot get into heaven on the good relationship with God of your parents and just grow up in church and think you're going to heaven. 
You yourself must have a relationship with God and you yourself must live for the Lord in righteousness and follow him with all of your heart. And everybody said, Amen. So here comes the story of the grandfather, the father, and the grandson. If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, so it's going to list some things that were common virtues, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her home in, in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous. He shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So we have this righteous grandfather. If he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood, who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, takes profit, shall he then live? He shall not live. He has done all these abominations. Who he? The ungodly son. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. Individual accountability. Now we go to the godly grandson. Verse 14. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. And that happens, right? Sometimes you see, for example, the child of divorced parents or separated parents who have second family here and there, and they are so determined, my family will not be like that. My family will serve God. Sometimes it's like that. Children see the sins of their parents and go, mm -mm, not in my house. It's not going to happen. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules, walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. So that's really clear, right? But it's not the way the people of Israel were thinking. And honestly, if we would be honest with ourselves, sometimes it's not the way we human beings think even today. Because these are the principles of God in dealing with us, and they should be our principles in dealing with other people. But isn't it true that sometimes you know somebody and his father is just a scoundrel, and your first inclination is to prejudge the son because of his father? Isn't that still our inclination sometimes? Or 
somebody is like something, but his brother is such a good man, such an awesome Christian. And yet we tend to look at the brother with this, we paint him with the same paintbrush as his wicked brother. We just tend to be that way. And that's definitely the way the people of Israel were. But they went even further and they would say that the son should be punished for the iniquity of his father. So verse 19, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right, and has been careful to observe all my statutes, he shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. See, God is trying to lay it out clearly so that they would understand. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, praise God. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Isn't that a good principle? God does not even take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God doesn't take pleasure in the death of anybody. And yet sometimes you hear people praying about their enemies. Lord, may they get cancer and die. Lord, I, I just wish they would get COVID-19. Ooh, how, how wicked is that? Because God does not take pleasure in anyone's death, not even the wicked. And not rather that he should turn from his way and live. But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered for the treachery of which he is guilty and the sin he has committed. For them, he shall die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. For the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgressions he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? <laughs> oh God, trying to deal with people who have made up their minds. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his own ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed. You know, there is always and forever one solution for sin. <laughs> and it is, oh, the blood of Jesus, right? Right? Throughout eternity, 
it has always been and it will always be. We see it in the book of Revelation. They will still be singing about the blood of the Lamb that cleanses us from all sin and makes us righteous with God. And carrying on and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. What an invitation. First of all, what a statement. <laughs> so don't go around praying that your enemy is going to get COVID-19, okay? <laughs> God doesn't have pleasure in that. In fact, pray for the healing of and the well-being of your enemy. Ouch. Turn to God and live. What an invitation. What a statement. Turn to the Lord and live. Amen. May we all do that in Jesus' name. That is our Ezekiel reading for today. Thank you so much for joining us as we have learned a lot in those two chapters. Now that's our morning devotions for today. Thank you for joining us. Please do join us tonight for our online COP evening service. God bless you.